Hi, and welcome to Captain's Corner, a podcast about community, mission, and culture. This podcast is a ministry of the Salvation Army of Tampa, where we exist because we believe every person can be the person God has called them to be. Also, please check us out at tampasa.org and go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Brent Waters, the Stead Professor of Ethics at Garrett Evangelical Seminary. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, hello, friends. It's Captain Andy Miller here for Captain's Corner. We're delighted to have Dr. Brent Waters with us, who is the Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics and a director of the Jerry and Mary Joy Stead Center of Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, which is in the Chicago area. I think it's connected to Northwestern University. And I just found out something really interesting. Some of the people who are connected to the Salvation Army will maybe recognize the name Stead, that the the family that endowed the chair that Dr. Waters is a part of is connected to the famous person in Salvation Army history, W.T. Stead. I won't have time to talk about that here, but we're just so delighted to have Dr. Waters with us. Dr. Waters, welcome to Captain's Corner. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. We, um, I, I came in touch with your book, Just Capitalism, um, A Christian Ethic of Economic Globalization, which was published by W.J.K. Westminster John Knox in 2016. And I, I might seem like a somewhat out of the blue for a Salvation Army officer in Florida to contact an ethics professor about capitalism. But I, I found several of the ideas to be very helpful for the work that we're doing here, particularly as it relates to helping people step out of homelessness and poverty themselves. But I have to admit, like as I get started here, uh, I'm a little surprised to see a, a positive treatment of capitalism and globalization coming from a professor. It was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, is that? It, I, I don't sense many people writing in a, a po- with a positive lens on these subjects. Is that? Is this new to you? Uh, it, it's been new, but it's been brewing for a long time. I think there were two factors. Because in the first place, I married into a business family. My, my father-in-law was in, involved in retail. And I saw another side of business that many people don't see, and that's, that's from the inside out rather than the inside look, outside looking in. And I realized that business, particularly those that are rooted in the communities, isn't this dog-eat-dog kind of world. They really do appreciate and try to work with a wide range of people in the community, with customers, suppliers, employees, and, and the like. And the second was simply, um, I, what started me to think about this topic was to take very seriously the idea uh, promoted, particularly in Catholic moral uh, teaching, of a preferential for the poor. Yes. And, and I began to think through, practically, what does that really mean? And the more and more I read, I realized, if you really want to help the poor, you have to help them get involved in the market, because I think it's the only viable game in town. And if you're going to advocate for markets, you have to advocate for capitalism because I think it's a package deal. Wow, interesting. And, you know, as you bring up, your, you said your father-in-law is involved in business. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that's uh, similar to my experience. So I, I even took a class in seminary, and I went to a great evangelical seminary, and I was on uh, globalization and Christian mission. And I sat down, and I'll tell you, the, the word globalization was not used in a positive way throughout that course. And and I found myself like um, somewhat cynical of 
uh, capitalist systems. And that was before I entered in, into ministry. This is like the longest little portion I'll share here. I definitely want to hear from you. But as I, my first few years in ministry, particularly as a Salvation Army, is a group that has, uh, that, well, like you said, the Catholic moral uh, tradition of a preferential option for the poor. Like that's who we are. That's who we've been raised up to be. I, I thought of myself, I wanted, I tried to move away from capitalist type of terms for a certain period. I even, I'm sorry to say, I remember looking over our, um, I've changed, let's just say, I, I remember looking over our Angel Tree warehouse where we had, you know, 3,000 kids being served. It's a gigantic space. And I remember even using the language in my mind. Here we're re- redistributing the resources, you know, from people who've hoarded them. I remember I thought that in my mind, but then as you, similar to you, as I got to know donors and as I got to know people who are connected to our ministry, I began to see like this kind of a negative view that I had towards capitalism, markets, globalization was not necessarily the character which I had drawn. Um, so that, that kind of has helped me. And then and several other things have led me to this place for years, but your book has helped me in additionally like this idea that the way to help the poor is giving them access and helping them navigate the market. Is that right? What I, what I, it, it, please correct me. If I'm saying something wrong, I really like to hear your imp, imp, impact. No, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that this is where we, where the church sometimes uh, fails its people is that it doesn't really – uh, support them in their efforts to uh, to enter the markets, and I think one of the keys here in, in the in the kind of economy that you and I live in now is, is, is education is is clear um, that people have to have the skills to be able to compete, and also to recognize that those markets are increasingly increasingly global and not just local and national. Hmm. So, w- what makes a market good? Like why? Like, again, like sometimes like uh, not just in um, evangelical seminaries, but also in you know regular universities, often markets aren't seen through a positive lens. I mean, what makes a market good? I think what makes a market good is that it provides for us the things that we need that on our own we probably could not survive without. I mean, we couldn't survive without. So, for example, an exercise that I I take my students in in class sometimes is I ask them, how many of you this morning woke up in the building that you built? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Very yeah, very few hands go up, if any. And I say, how many of you ate the food this morning that you either grew or slaughtered? <laughs> Again, very few, few hands. Occasionally a hand will go up saying, well, I got the food from my garden. I say, well, where did you get the seeds? <laughs> so, And you go on yeah. and I say, look, if, if the market teaches us nothing else, it teaches us that we depend upon one another to provide goods and services. It's, it's really a simple right out of uh, uh, Smith that um, it's a specialization of labor. And then we—that's how we get things to trade. So that and another way of thinking about it, we flourish when we have other people do things for us that we're then now in a, in a monetary community willing to pay for. So I'm, what I'm arguing is that what, what's good about markets is it helps—it it enables human flourishing. Hmm. And, and you use the term affluence in this too, and again, not in a negative way. And on page 98, you say affluence is the key to combating poverty on a global scale. Yes, I think what I mean by affluence is simply having more money than you need to survive so that you have some discretionary income and you can begin to to buy other things that you need or to begin to uh, invest in other kinds of things. 
And I think we're at a crucial point in, in, in global history in that for the first time we have a thriving global middle class, hmm. but it's still fragile. And I think that we need to do things that, which continue to strengthen and promote the growth of the middle class because it's, um, unless, now I'm not arguing against voluntary poverty. I think some people, you know, take vows of poverty and, and are very much uh, spiritually blessed for it. Hmm. But I'm talking about involuntary poverty. And that, I think, involuntary poverty often crushes people because if you have to make a choice between uh, buying clothes or eating, you're not flourishing. Where I think affluence gives you the ability to buy all that you need and still have something left over that that can enable you to to better uh, the the condition of your family, to have time for leisure, things like that. Right. And we say more than you need to survive. Some people might um, push back against that and and, uh, maybe think of, John the Baptist describing that, well, if you have two coats and somebody doesn't have one, you're stealing it from them. Um, or Jesus' words, it's harder for a rich man to get in the kingdom of God. Uh, to, to, to walk through the eye of a needle, uh, Matthew 25, when you don't feel least of these, you've done it to me. You had a distinction, and I hadn't thought of it in these terms, like even using an accounting term of zero sum, like the, the, the difference in the nature of our economy. Could you talk about that a little bit, like in, in response to those verses and how our society is different? Yes. Well, I think it, it's not surprising that, as you mentioned, you know, many theology and ethics professors uh, have negative reactions to something like capitalism because for most of the history of, of, of Christianity, um, we've been gravely at best suspicious of wealth and riches. And the reason being is that we were in what were called zero-sum economies, and that is it was very limited what you could produce because you were just pretty much limited on what either the earth or, or mining or timber, things like that, could produce. Mm-hmm. So that if, if I hoard, I am actually am taking away from people who need it. So that's why there was a great suspicion because it was felt that the wealthy became wealthy at the expense of the poor. Is um, that still the case? Do you- I don't think so, because with the Industrial Revolution, what we realize is wealth is not created through, through simple, wealth is created through productivity, okay. and productivity in theory is, is limitless. So the more you produce, um, the more there is to go around. Now, it, distribution is, is maybe an issue in some instances. Are, is, are the, uh, is the money that, or is the wealth that is produced uh, fairly or justly distributed? But that's a different issue. Hmm. It doesn't mean that uh, I, someone is getting is getting rich at my expense. Not that's simply not necessarily the case in most instances. So, and you say that like capital is like the, the basic thesis I think from your book is that economic exchange is necessary. You say, but not a sufficient condition for flourishing. And if it's like the economic exchange that's like a it's it's necessary like it's like it's something that has to happen mm-hmm. but um and so that's like one side in the first half of your book and the second half then is saying that it's not sufficient what do you mean by it's not sufficient well well there again I, I think you're absolutely right on the necessity of it because exchange is a very nice way to, to, to think about it is what is mine becomes yours and what is yours becomes mine and we both benefit hmm but we don't necessarily uh, flourish from that because there's also this term called communication, which, which translated from the Greek means communion or to communicate. So communication is different. To communicate goods is something like we do in the church, which is what is yours and what is mine become ours. And I think this is where really humans flourish. But first of all, you have to establish uh, a base for that, and the base is where is exchange. 
in which you, you, okay. you provide for your material well-being so that you're then enabled to engage in, in greater range of communication with people. So and when you say communication, it's not, not kind of in like a mass communication sense. It's, the, uh, it's connected to the word koinonia, like this is like, the, it's like a, is a tool. Help me understand, am I, I might not be saying that the best way. No, it is, koinonia is really the word that it's translated from. Okay. Exactly captures what, what I'm trying to portray is that it's like, for example, within families, we, we don't really engage in exchange. We engage, engage more in communication. Because um, you know, not everything is, well, I'll only do this if you do that. We, we may t- teach basic skills to children, but that's not how families function. Same thing in the church. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't buy the things that you need in church. You, you share them. You communicate them. So that, um, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying in all this is that I think you're, there's still a tremendous need for charity. Hmm. But charity is not necessarily the final solution that you might need in certain kinds of instances. Obviously, I uh, on your section uh, when you talked about uh, ch- chapter titled "Poverty and Impoverishment." Um, when you got to talk about charity, I I made sure to take a, some detailed notes. I thought that was really interesting. I I love the connections that you make to. I mean, this is a little out of my area. Like I'm, the Salvation Army, wherever we are, is always localized. So our mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and meet human needs in His name without discrimination. And we do that in 131 countries, and we serve in every zip code in America. And everywhere we are, we try to look at the local needs and then adapt our mission to that community. But still, we are serving in 131 countries, and mo- most of those, um, most there are several countries where that, that are dependent financially um, upon um, generally Western nations. But I was interested in when you talk about charity, how you brought in the work of the Copenhagen Consensus Center and their concepts of trying to think about how you can truly best help the poor. One of our challenges in the Salvation Art, like I experience regularly, is I can help donors get to, like I can give donors a great experience, but that mm-hmm. might, might, might not be what actually helps people in the best way. And I saw, saw some parallels there in your discussion of charity in the Copenhagen Center. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting when you look at, at, at uh, uh, you know, uh, donations over the world, either private or through government for, uh, sources, is that development is that oftentimes we really don't do much listening. We impose an agenda upon... Yes upon people rather than asking people what do you think you need right and i think it's it's when you when you start to really listen to what people need then you may begin to say well maybe they don't need what i what i have and or maybe i need to deliver it in a different way so a a classic example is that for um and we know that one of the best ways to fight malaria in sub-saharan africa is simply mosquito nets And so a well-meaning um, uh, organization came in and gave everyone free uh, mosquito nets. Well, people have mosquito nets, but unfortunately it also drove a lot of local businesses out of business, so they actually created more poverty through their generosity. Where, what they maybe should have been asking is, how can we begin to invest in these companies so that they can make more mosquito nets at a reasonable price, but, but uh, also maintain uh, employment? So it's, I think the thing to think about when you, when you really want to help uh, the poorest is think counterintuitively that many times what may appear 
from uh, an affluent position is not what they really need, and you have to be a good listener to really come in and say, okay, what is it? What is it you're trying to do? Right. We we found like um, in Tampa, we operate the only emergency shelter for single men and women. We also have a drug and alcohol treatment center that has about 200 people that are in that six-month program that helps actually in a very capitalist way take people's items that they want to get rid of and we resell them and then we run that program off the net income from those sales. But then on our on our emergency shelter side, it's been a real we, – we've had to make a shift in the last few years – to move people, even ourselves, away from looking at people as objects of our charity. Instead, these are people created in the image of God who we have the privilege of serving. And like, and I believe that God has given them the capacity, the creative capacity to thrive in life, that God hasn't called them to be homeless. But if we enable them to stay on the street or if we don't encourage them to take steps towards flourishing that we're not doing our job like i i actually probably could make a little bit more money for the salvation army if i um had more people (laughs) or if i served more meals but ultimately we're trying to help people get out out of those situations so this is the interesting like where you bring up charity i'm curious like if if you see a difference between justice and charity uh, it's not necessarily something you talk about that that any distinction there, but I'm curious if you know, kind of as an ethicist, do you see a difference between justice and charity? Well, I, th- <clears throat> I think there's a tension between the two, quite hmm. frankly, uh, because I think in in some respects, charity may at times require unconditional forgiveness. Wow. Whereas justice, I think, is always demanding that someone pay the price for for the deed committed. Wow. And so I think there's an inevitably a tension there. Um, so that, um, you know, doing, doing the loving thing, I think, is usually doing the just thing, but also recognize sometimes one cannot be resolved at, except at the expense of the other. And, you know, fortunately, I think that's rare, but I think we have to keep that in mind. That, um, and also, you also have to talk about who's justice. Hmm, interesting. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I mean... You know, there, sometimes justice is simply rendered of whatever the powerful dictate. Yeah. Okay. Other, other times that is switched and saying, well, no, justice is whatever the poor demand. Hmm. I think both of those oversimplify what justice entails. I think justice entails, um, uh, I mean, it's contextual uh, to a large extent. Uh, I mean, the justice of the family is not the justice of the state, for mm-hmm. example. And to confuse the two, I think, creates a lot of mischief. So when when we and justice is important, but I think for the Christian, um, it's not it's not the most important virtue. I think the most important virtue still remains charity, which is that love of neighbor, um, and that love of neighbor normally will also try to achieve justice, but sometimes we have to go beyond justice to really love our neighbors. Interesting. Yeah, I the first time I heard um, that that concept. Um, you probably a, a colleague of yours in academia with um, Stanley Hauerwas. He said, you know, he, he used a not a word I'm going to use in this podcast, but we don't need any darn justice. We have we have um, we have charity, <laughs> and uh, and I think it's in- interesting, like that the to he- hear that distinction that we need more more than justice. Um, 
and that kind of brings in the concept of how we look at our neighbor. One of the interesting things from your book too, which I hadn't thought about, was like how do we love our global neighbor? That in light of globalization, economic globalization, our neighbor is very different than our neighbor was 20 years ago. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, uh, increasingly we deal with faceless and anonymous neighbors, hmm. but we but we nonetheless uh, deal with them. I mean, an example I think I give in the book is, and I'll try to do this very quickly, is um, imagine that uh, I need to buy a new computer so I can continue to write books and articles that are read by very few people. <laughs> so, so one night I, I click on, I order my, my dream computer, and it'll be delivered to me. What, what remains faceless to me is literally hundreds of transactions that that simple uh, act uh, initiated because although the company that I may be ordering from is headquartered in California, the server that they use for the computer is in Vancouver. The hmm. customer service representative who looks and, and checks my orders located in Dublin, Ireland. The software and, and hardware manufactured in, in Bucharest, Taipei, uh, Thailand, Japan, all over the world. The the final computer is perhaps uh, assembled in Shanghai and then air freighted by a company uh, uh, headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee and then it's delivered on my door. I can't get it to work, so that night I call customer service and I talk with someone in Bangalore, India. I mean, those are all neighbors. Hmm. No, I have not made any face-to-face contact with them, and presumably we all benefit from those, from those anonymous exchanges. But I think that that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind in a global economy. Uh, we're still commander of our neighbors, but those neighbors will be people we're largely unaware of. Wow. that that changes the name like you're so there's a way that almost entering into the market uh having a job buying products there's a way that that correct me if i'm wrong that's loving your neighbor because you're providing um access to market for them is that right oh i think so i I mean i think it's uh, granted it's not a real you know costly or or act or anything like that but i think the mere fact of exchange means that we provide employment and, and and for each other and through our exchanges, we provide for the material well-being of each other. And that's no small thing. That's something we shouldn't really, um, you know, assume. Because, for example, you know, if, if all of us all of a sudden quit or, or started buying less, we would create unemployment. Hmm. And I think it's, that's one of the things we often don't recognize is, 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 the, is the interconnectedness of the market. I mean, if economics has taught me nothing else, it's taught me that autonomy is largely a fiction. Oh, interesting. So say again, it's taught you that, that autonomy is largely a fiction. Yes. Okay. I, I'm really self-dependent. My, my, my well-being utterly depends upon others. Well, that's a great spiritual principle, too. <laughs> I mean, we can really get to that place. So, so, like, like, so it's such like we don't do anything for ourselves in this, wor- in this economy. Like, whereas uh, it may be, I'm not sure, not sure if this is what you're saying, like maybe centuries ago, we were more autonomous because we were um, making our own uh, cheese and uh, building our own house and that kind of thing. Um, but now we don't do much for ourselves except for participate in the economy. Maybe I'm off in that. No, I think it's, it's in, the, in the main right. And it, but, but, but here, here becomes the, the ironic twist that, again, Adam Smith captured. It is through pursuing my own self-interest that I actually help the interests of others. Hmm. So that, um, so that you're right. I mean, um, the fact that I can't build my, my own house means 
I have to employ carpenters, contractors to do that. Um, and, you know, the fact that I can't make my own milk means I'm, I'm dependent upon dairy farmers and cheesemakers, distributors of cheese and the like. It, it's, it, it's, I, and I think you're right. What we haven't made the connection is that the interdependence of economic activity, economic exchange, should also make us more aware of our dependency upon each other in terms of the spiritual realm and in terms of just basic human life. Hi, friends. I just want to take a minute here to tell you about the sponsor for our first season of Captain's Corner. Trade South is the Southern Territory Supplies and Purchasing Department. They are tasked with resourcing the field with products and services at the best negotiated prices. This is accomplished in a two-fold way. To buy and stock products in volume, maximizing our collective purchasing power, and to negotiate discount vendor agreements that reflect the needs of the territory. Trade South stocks over 4,000 unique products in its Atlanta warehouse and offers over 5,000 more shipped directly through vendors. Visit TradeSouth at MyTradeSouth.com for vendor agreements, programs. You can visit discounts.mytradesouth.com. And I'll just add that Trade South has produced my two books, Stay the Course and His uh, Holistic Hospitality. You can find those there, and I always refer people to that site because I'd rather people leverage their dollar at a, a Army site where the kind of the net income is going to go to support the Salvation Army's mission. And so I just encourage you to check out this site. Jeremy Roll and his team have done a great job really bringing the Salvation Army's trade concept into the 21st century with their website and their great customer service. So check them out at MyTradeSouth.com. Now back to our program. Now, now you do say, I, I like how I, you, you point to an, an article that you wrote earlier and then you bring it up later. You say... Um, uh, I, 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 by the way, I enjoy your writing. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a professor, so I'm not like in that, in that academic world at the same time, but I do love it when, uh, when an academic and a theologian ethicist like yourself can have witty phrases every now and then. It really helps me out. <laughs> and you have, you say two and a half cheers for globaliza- globalization. Uh, and like, I, I take, take by that two and a half cheers, not three cheers, uh, um, if, so you do have a little critique throughout your book of capitalism and economic globalization. So just so people can hear some of that, can you t- share some of like the areas where you think it's it can be a little off? Yeah, I, I think okay. Part one, one example would be any any kind of market system means there's going to be competition. Mm-hmm. Long term competition is good for us, but short term is going to be winners. There's going to be losers. And I don't think that we've done a very good job of helping losers get back into the markets. Interesting. So I think we need we need to do a better job of saying how do you re, how do we retool workers so that they can begin to take advantages of changes in the marketplace. And and I, like I said, I think both through our educational systems and through other kinds of policies, we've more or less not paid proper attention to to how people who are affected by those changes. Because, for, for example, I mean, one thing that markets do very well is that they disrupt, they destroy. It is creative destruction, and there's no no need to try to gloss that over. So that, um, you know, there used to be a thriving furniture industry in North Carolina. It's mm-hmm. pretty much gone now. Right. And now what are those furniture workers doing? What are they making? Uh, or you take a, take a look at 10 years ago, you know, was, were, was Samsung and Apple the biggest mobile phone makers? No, they were, I don't even think Apple had made their first phone yet. Mm-hmm. 
so those changes you really have to be aware of is saying, look, if, if people are, if markets are at their best, it means people are going to constantly need to make and learn new skills. The other one is just simply the acknowledgement that in markets uh, you have to be – to really compete in markets, you can't be risk aversive. Mm-hmm. You need to take risks. And that's another thing is that I think, I think that's a spiritual discipline as well is, is who do we ultimately trust in. Right. Um, and um, so from that standpoint, I think um, my, my – and the biggest reason why I say only two and a half chairs is because – um, only God deserves three chairs. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're able to cl- clarify, and, and, and just I think it's helpful to to your argument as a whole that you're even throughout the book, you're you're not just like a fanboy for capitalism, but I think you're able to show how there, you know, this is a system. I mean, I don't, I hesitate to say that God's, you know, created it. I don't know if there'll be something better. You know, who is it? Somebody said like, you know. Um, I'm going to get this way off Benjamin Franklin or somebody like that said, you know, capitalism is a bad system, but it's just like the best one that's come along yet. It's like, you know, it's it's, it's better than all the ones that have failed. <laughs> um, I wanted to bring up an interesting, um, when I think of like non-capitalist systems, um, particularly like in our, uh, even you wrote this in 2016, you know, Bernie Sanders had kind of made his way around. I'm not really into this like a political reason, but socialism has come up a little bit more uh, Marxism has. And in 1849, interesting happened um, that two people came to London's East End. They made their way there, and one, and they both had a response to say, they both saw people who were like what you described, who had been displaced because of um, the Industrial Revolution, or or as, as society changed, they didn't have a place anymore, and so they were kind of grouped together in a way, or found their way to London's East End, and um, uh, it was called the the residuum of London's East End, and that was um, Karl Marx came in 1849, but also William Booth came to mm-hmm. London's East End in 1849. They both came and they both observed the same situations. Now, of course, it's easy for me to make William Booth into the ultimate hero, right? Uh, uh, but they, they came, I think like the difference, this is, this is where I might get in trouble with some other people, but William Booth came and at the core saw these as people who are created a body and soul, who um, had an eternal destiny and were people created in the image of God. Whereas... Karl Marx saw them as like kind of like an unworkable class. I mean, you don't actually bring up Mark, Marxism or socialism too much in the book, but I'm just curious of your thoughts on like how other systems, like why, okay, the better question is like, why is capitalism this better system than Marxism or even forms of socialism? Okay. Oh, and by the way, I think Karl Marx actually wrote the obituary for Abraham Lincoln for the Times of London. Which is I always thought very interesting. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, well, I think I, I think where the weakness of socialism and, and particularly Marxism comes in is that uh, all they are is materialistic, hmm. and therefore, and I think they also uh, have never really moved beyond the notion of economy as zeros. Right. Therefore, if if people are wealthy. By definition, they got it through ill-gotten gain. Mm, mm-hmm. Therefore, there's a moral imperative to to redistribute. But mm. I think I think that fails because you can only distribute a few times, and then you run out of 
wealth to distribute because <laughs> you're not creating it anymore. Whereas I think capitalism it remains agnostic, but I think it, it allows for spiritual development, and I think spiritual development is much more comfortable in the capitalist kind of community because it does it. I think it implicitly recognizes the uh, um, uh, a larger dimension of people than simply meeting the material needs. That ma- meeting material needs is a means and not an end in itself. Amen. Yeah, I, 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 that's I feel like what is at the core of the Salvation Army's understanding. Like we've be, it, and what's kept us is that we've remained a denomination, um, relatively small in the United States, but over a million members of our churches across the world. Um, but we're our sense is that God has called us to serve people, but we're just not to do that as an end in itself. Like it's not that, that since we are a people of a body and soul like we believe our bodies will be resurrected and part of a new creation that there's something to be valued in that but there's a spiritual reality too that helps us understand that we're more than just material beings i i hope that that's why it may even people can't express it i hope that that's why people support organizations like the salvation army um well i've i've really enjoyed I really en- enjoyed your book. I wish I, I had longer to talk. I, I, I did, um, s- since I, I, I know that you're working on another project, too, um, that has to do with work. Is that right? I'm, I, I heard, heard a, uh, another podcast you have with Scott Ray. What, what, what's, what are you working on these days? Well, I'm working on a book called, uh, well, actually two books, but the first one is called Common Callings and Ordinary Virtues in Praise of the Mundane. Oh, wow. And- Sounds exciting. <laughs> Well, you can't make it too exciting or it loses its power. But what I'm really saying is that it's the ordinary things in life that we do that really count the most. Hmm. Um, so, for example, the last chapter is going to be called On the Good of Being Boring. And, <laughs> Sorry, uh, it sounds, sounds great. <laughs> no, it's, it's looking at very uh, ordinary relationships, friendships, uh, marriage, uh, children and parents, and very um, common activities like eating and shopping and, and things like that, and just saying, Look, uh, attend to these because these are ultimately very important things that that uh, we don't uh, really pay too much attention to. Hmm. Yeah, I I often quote in preaching um, this great line I found in um, a book of essays on Chesterton. I don't want to act like I can understand all of Chesterton. I don't want to act smarter than I am. But uh, in, in defense of san- sanity, he has this uh, chapter where he talks about the most adventurous thing you could possibly do is go of all the chimneys in London. Pick one, climb down that chimney, and try and live with that family. <laughs> yeah, yep. You know, that's the, 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 the power, the beauty of the, the mundane, like the daily thing, like you're talking about, like living in, with, your, with your spouse and, and just going through daily life, that there's adventure in that. I love that. Yeah, I, it's, been a, it's been fun to write because what I discovered in this is you, you have to make it try to make it interesting enough that people are still going to read it, but not too interesting. Otherwise, the mundane becomes exciting and it's no longer the mundane. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Didn't think about that problem. Yeah. And you said you have another book you're working on as well? Yeah, it's a book called uh, Disembodied Bioethics. Hello. And uh, That's where I've done a lot of my work. And what, what I'm looking at is, is really the history of modern bioethics and healthcare. And the one question I'm trying to answer is, how is it that we transform the body from an object of care to a problem to be solved? And, um, and I think that that's really 
made a huge difference in bioethics and the practice of medicine because we're trying to overcome the limitations of our body. And it seems to me we get into trouble every time we try to do that. that we were created to be finite and mortal creatures, and as you said earlier, our hope is in resurrection and not cheating death. Amen. Back up again, I, I, the subtitle of that second book, um, say, can you say that again? I had... Well, it's, it's, it's disembodied bioethics, and I think it's just the subtitles, reflections on on the practice of medicine. Okay, uh, but the idea is like the the, the problem has been you're su- suggesting there is that we've made our bodies something that needs to be solved or mastered, and you're, you're yeah. suggesting that we we can't or we shouldn't master our bodies in that way. Is, is that right? Is that what you're saying? That's right. Correct. I mean, what I'm saying is that to to accept the fact that you are a creature means that you accept the fact that you're also finite and mortal. Hmm. Well, I have I, I I turned 39 this year, and I have a few things about my body that are reminded me of that fact. <laughs> but, I, I'm quite a bit older than you are, and right now my body is not my best friend. Well, and so so you're suggesting this is a good thing, so I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Waters, I'd be interested to say if if you could share just a little about your own spiritual journey. And um, maybe, maybe what type of church you attend, and what God's doing in your life these days. Well, I mean, uh, I'm I'm basically an evangelical Anglican. I okay. worship a little little tribe of Anglicans down the road, and most Sunday mornings I'm just the youngest person there. So <laughs> I'm not sure how much longer it's going to be around. Um, what I really want to be is is a. a, a is both evangelical and Catholic. What I mean by that is, is to find fellowship with fellow, with believers, whoever they are. I'm, I'm not too concerned about denominational la- labels. Um, what I'm reflecting on more and more is really wh- what is required of me to really demonstrate a love of God and neighbor. I mean, you know, I think those two great commandments is really the summary of Christianity. And how do we think about those? And how, how do we really exhibit that love of God and neighbor and, and how we live our lives? Um, and other than that, I'm the, I'm now uh, learning, you know, what it's like to be a research professor because I'm not so much in the classroom anymore. It's okay. primarily directing this the Stead Center and, and and doing some some writing. So that's uh, getting used to that. And finally, uh, I mean, it, part of my spiritual journey has simply been that um, um, my neighbors and God never cease to surprise me, and I keep and I should learn my lesson of, of quit trying to limit what people and God can do. Amen. Well, we, I, uh, I love the, the idea of being an evangelical Anglican. I, like, I think of you know, John Wesley is the spiritual grandfather of the Salvation Army, and we are in, the, in that theological tradition, and I, I quote him pretty much every Sunday and when, I, when I'm preaching. Um, and I love the idea of like, thinking about ourselves as being Catholic. You know, somewhere in the Chicagoland area, too, is, um, um, uh, I think it's, Scott Van Hooser, um, I can't, he had the, uh, this confession that came out during the 500th anniversary of the uh, um, Protestant Reformation, the Reforming Catholic Confession, and trying to find those points of unity between us. I love, I love all that. You know, your 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 namesake for your chairs 
has a lot to say about ethics too. When you look back to the history of right. of WT Stead, I think you might find some of that interesting though, if you look in any basic Salvation Army history book. And I'll just encourage, I'll encourage my friends. I think I'll have a few who are serving in the Chicagoland area. I even have a good friend who's actually just been appointed to the Evanston Corps. And um, so I encourage you all to look up Dr. Waters and find his book. It's, you know, once again, it's called Just Capitalism, the one we talked about mainly today. And these other books are coming out too. Is there any way that we could find you? I mean, Amazon, I'm sure. Is there any other way that we can find your work? Um, well, Amazon would be the, the number one. And then uh, you can go to my author's, or my uh, faculty page at uh, Garrett Evangelical. Okay. Well, great. Well, we sure appreciate you taking time with us. I hope there's a chance we can meet face-to-face sometime. Of course, you're welcome to come down to sunny Florida. It's a little bit, particularly during the winter, you might want to make your way down here. <laughs> We'd love to meet you sometime. Story's a good time to go to Florida. I've learned that. Yes, that's right. Well, we pray God will continue to bless your ministry. Just know, I know it might be hard. People maybe criticize academics for being in ivory towers, but your book's given me some language that's helped me think about the ministry God's called us to do here in Tampa. So we appreciate you and the work that you're doing for the kingdom. All right. Well, thank you. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Captain's Corner. Join us next week when we have Major Ethan Frizzell, the Salvation Army Area Commander in Nashville. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit us at tampasa.org and go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks. See you next time.